And of course, Easter is one of the highest moments in terms of the church calendar. And so what we're doing in these series is we're thinking of things which get in the way of our relationship with God. And we're naming those idols which need to be dealt with. Idolatry is a real problem in the Old and the New Testament, and it's a problem with us today. Last Sunday, Bill did a splendid job opening the series with the idol of worry and led us through Psalm 121, a great psalm of ascents that emphasizes the fact that we have a God who doesn't sleep, a God who doesn't tire, a God who continually watches over us. And then at the end of that service, we asked you to uh, fill out worry cards. In other words, you don't put your name on it, you just write something that's troubling you. And we got about 50 of those in. It was a great uh, affirmation to the fact that we all need to deal with these problems that come into our lives. I jokingly said to Joanne, next Sunday I'm preaching on power, we'll have people put their credit cards in the office. (laughs) But we're not going to do that. We're going to talk about power and especially how it can encroach in our lives. And what I want to do is introduce... We got it up. Good. I want to talk about two major principles that are competing in our hearts and lives involving power. These are found in both the Old and New Testament. One is what we would call the principle of the world, and the other is the principle of the Bible. The world principle of power, let me just sort of summarize it. The accumulation of personal power is based on a combination of several factors, including natural talent, good health, a solid education, a strong work ethic, appearance, not only your physiognomy, but also the clothes you wear. Ever heard of a power suit or a power tie? You know, these are the accruements of power. Very importantly, it's not only what you know, but who you know. When you're in that interview, having somebody on the inside who's pulling for you makes a great deal of difference in terms of you getting the job, the promotion, whatever it might be. And then finally, all of us recognize that getting breaks in life are often a matter of good fortune being in the right place at the right time with the right skills. So, you accumulate those things, and then you grab for as much power as you can hold on to. Because life is short, and if you have sufficient power when you reach the end of life, you will have an ability to enjoy that time and to have a modicum of security. I think that is, in essence, the uh, especially in America, we are the land of the self-made person. Uh, But also probably the the rest of the developed world. That is kind of the image of what power is and how one can achieve it. The Bible, the biblical view, is very different. Personal power, as we see it described in the Old and New Testament, is a gift of God that comes to us with a purpose. And that purpose is to bring glory and honor and power to God. Glory to His name. 
power to his kingdom. And it's uh, what Isaiah 40 is all about. Um, the passage begins, all humans are like grass. Our, our faith is like flowers that spring up and then fade. We're vacillatory. Um, the good news is that we have a God who cares about us. We heard him about last time in Psalm 121 in Isaiah. He's a God who has rewards that come with him. He cares for our needs. He's our shepherd of our souls. He wants us to succeed. But people, Isaiah tells us, they have a hard time trusting in things they can't see. So what they do is they fashion idols. Rich people out of gold and silver. Poor people out of wood. But they set them up in their homes and they pray to them. They offer sacrifice to them. They're hoping to gain an advantage. They're hoping to gain some sort of power. And then the final words that Vonda read to us so beautifully. Um, Don't despair. Wait. He gives power to the faint. He strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary. The young will be exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So, what a contrast to what we've been raised with. What is part of our educational system. What is part of the ethos of the American way. What we're supposed to do is to receive the power we have from God and use that. And if we don't have it, to wait and remember that he will supply in his time. Another part of the biblical view is that this life is not the end. It's not just 80 years and that's your shot. The biblical, the Christian view is this is the beginning of an eternal life. We have a destiny in which we're going to enjoy relationships and power and joy forever. C.S. Lewis, in a marvelous sermon, if you haven't read it, try to find it and read it. It's called The Weight of Glory. In that sermon, speaking of this issue of our life eternally versus the things of the world, he says, Lewis does, you've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours like the life of a gnat. You know, these things which we value so much, which we think are enduring, these things are going to pass away and you are going to continue. That has to be factored in to the whole question of power. How do we exercise power in this life? We have to think about the fact that we're just preparing for the next life. Power is a serious issue. But power can distract us from what's really important, and that is the kingdom of God. So in this life, we're just beginning. Now, really, power itself is not the problem. Uh, 
power is something that God uses and He gives to us, and there's nothing wrong with exercising power. I was reading recently, listening actually, on the way to work um, from the book of Esther, and um, I was struck by the fact that Esther is a woman who uses the power of her appearance to save her people from genocide. That's powerful. She is described in the text of Esther as beautiful in face and form. She was an Israeli knockout. And King Xerxes, when he was trying to find a new head for his harem, chose Esther. And she used that position and his affection for her. She's a very intelligent, very witty woman. She's got incredible courage. But the power lies in her beauty. Never denigrate what God has given to you. We have power and we should use it. The crucial thing, though, for Christians is to use it for the kingdom. To use it to bring glory and honor and power to God's kingdom. Another story I like really well is um, the story of a man named William Wilberforce. You might remember him from history. Late, early 18, 19th century, late 18th century. He is a parliamentarian in England, a devout evangelical Christian, and he is absolutely disgusted with the slave trade which England is profiting by. It's been estimated that in Wilberforce's life, 60% of the gross national product of Great Britain was based on slavery. They didn't have many slaves in England, but they transported them from Africa to the New World. And that was bringing a lot of money in. And Wilberforce felt it was against the kingdom of God. So, almost single-handedly, one man, uh, for 30 years, campaigns against the slave trade. And before he died, he uh, saw his bill passed. And from that point on, Britain was no longer involved in transporting slaves. So, one man using incredible power, personal perseverance, was able to change history. That is something that I think gladdens the heart of God. But you know, there is a seductive nature to power that um, is dangerous. And I think when we exercise power, we have to watch out for it. It's, um, it's illustrated in many ways. But the more we use power, the more we depend upon it. And it's very easy for that which is a normal part of life to encroach upon our relationship with God and to begin to change us, to make us into something which is not really who we're meant to be. I think in modern literature, no one has captured this dynamic better than J.R.R. Tolkien in his famous series, um, Lord of the Rings. You might remember it starts with Bilbo and the Hobbit, and then it goes into a series of, of books which develop the story. You might remember in that story there's a character that's unforgettable, and his name is Gollum. Gollum is a former hobbit who's been corrupted by power. Oh, you can't see Gollum. He's hiding there up there. But uh, Gollum is um, an amazing figure. And what he's representing, I think, is the corrupting nature of power in life.
Um, Gollum, living a normal life in the Shire, in Hobbiton, and uh, getting along with his friends. He's a jolly fellow. He sits around and enjoys life with his large, hairy feet, as Tolkien describes them. And then one day, while swimming, he discovers a ring, a ring which is beautiful. And he takes that ring and admires it and begins to call it his precious. It is a symbol, I think, of power. I used to think, when I first read this at 13, that the, the ring in Tolkien's world was a symbol of atomic power. You know, and it's going to lead to corruption if you get it. But I think it's power in general, what Tolkien is going for. And I think I can prove that. Well, it's not only beautiful, but when you put it on, you become invisible. And Gollum begins to realize that now he can do whatever he wants and no one is going to find out about it. That's the seductive nature of power. The more we increase it, the more we use it, the better we get at manipulating it, the better our chances of never getting caught. And down the cycle continues. This image uh, that Tolkien uses is not unique to Tolkien. He borrows and borrows well from the ancient Greeks. You might remember that there was a character in ancient Greek literature named Gyges. Gyges, like, like uh, Gollum, finds a ring and uh, understands its power and begins to use it first to entertain himself, secondly, to satisfy his lusts, Thirdly, as the power increases and he realizes how much he can do, he kills the king and marries the king's wife. So, uh, this is not a new idea. This is an old idea. Plato and Herodotus understood it well. Uh, the Bible, though, speaks to it very, very clearly and gives us a wonderful counterpoint. With, with power, Gollum and Gyges think they can beat any rap. They can get out of any jam. You have the illusion, because you're powerful, to think that you'll never get caught. To think that you're cheating God, you're cheating morality, but actually, you're cheating yourself. Eventually, it's going to catch up with you. Here's what happens to Gollum when he loses the ring when a man named Bilbo Baggins, can you see that? You can barely see it, comes into the picture. And Bilbo Baggins, while in an underground chamber, um, finds the ring and begins to have a transforming effect on his life. By the way, this fits in nicely with our sermon. If you know the story, do you remember what happens with the ring at the end? How salvation comes? I won't give it away because I won't want to deprive you of 1,400 pages or 12 hours on Netflix. But it's worth the time because it's a great illustration of the point we're trying to make. Now, let's transition to the Christ model. To put against this uh, image of power and its corrupting force, Christ simply teaches his disciples not only with wonderful words, but also with his powerful examples. The way up is down. 
Jesus came to earth to lead us, to help us to know. And one of the days in which he is most remembered for doing a treatise on power is when his disciples were debating about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They didn't understand the kingdom of heaven, but they knew it was coming. And they believed it was coming, and they all felt that they were pretty well qualified, and they wanted to know what their rank was going to be, what their power quotient in the kingdom of heaven. And what he does in a beautiful way to drive it home is to bring a child into their midst. He called a child to him and placed him among them. Example A. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes such a child in my name welcomes me. His message is the way up is down. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? You've got to enter it like a child. Here's a good riddle for Bilbo and Gollum. How is a child stronger than an adult? What can a child do better than any adult? And the mothers in the classroom will know, not classroom, mothers in church will know, uh, and that is a child has a capacity to ultimately trust in that person who's loving them. That's hard for us to develop with God. That's where a child can show us. And that's what I think uh, Christ was trying to get through to his disciples. To be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to be fully trusting in God's goodness and God's power. That's how you're going to be elevated. But the way up is down. You've got to give up things. You've got to surrender things in order to gain things. And that's the dynamic that is so hard to get in our minds. The way up is down. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, listen to his words. He's speaking of an interview he had with Christ, the resurrected Christ. And he said to me, that is Christ saying to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How do we break the idol? How do we break the idol of power in our lives that draws us away from God? Um, let me give you some examples from everyday life that are more practical and that we can perhaps understand and take in. First of all, in the workplace and in the school. I know many of you are students. Most of you are working. It's absolutely critical in what we say and what we do that we maintain integrity and total honesty even if it means a disadvantage for us. We've got to be people who mean what we say, who stand for the truth, who are open and honest and caring. Let me use an example from our family. 
I can do so because Lindsay is getting married soon and she doesn't come to our church anymore. She's marrying a minister and she goes to his church. So I can talk about her without problems. When Lindsay was in graduate school in Austria, she was in a, uh, a very difficult class for her, a class called music theory. And all the people who were keyboard trained did really well in music theory, but the performers didn't do so well. They hadn't had as much training, and this was a real tough class to get through. Uh, the problem that she encountered, though, was when exams were given in music theory, the professors and the TAs left the room. And the culture of the school was you freely cheat off each other's paper. Now, she had been raised in California, in good schools with good parents, and she didn't feel comfortable doing that. And so um, she wrote back and shared with us, you know, I'm at a real disadvantage here. Not only do um, I don't cheat, but when I don't show my answers to others, they think I'm being snotty. So she's losing in two ways. But the important thing was that uh, her integrity mattered. You, you, you take a stand for what you believe. You wait on the Lord. Um, another area for us that's very common, and that is exercise of power in the home with your children, with your brothers and sisters if they're still living with you. Once again, the way up is down. We, we need to walk and talk in fairness and honesty, caring for people's needs, and being willing to admit when we've made a hasty judgment, being willing to ask for forgiveness if it's necessary. You know, Martin Luther got into some hot water for a famous statement he made, which was, Sin boldly. He wrote that in a letter to his cohort, to his uh, close friend, a man named Philip Melanchthon. And people often misunderstand what he meant by it. He doesn't mean just go out and have a lot of fun. Sin boldly. What he means is, if you're, in a person of, if you're a person who's in authority, like a pastor in a church, or a teacher in a class, especially in a seminary this would work, or a parent in a family... Be willing to admit when you have sinned. Christ has paid for those sins. It does no good for us to pretend that we don't sin. So Luther says, sin boldly, Melanchthon. Let people realize how you've been forgiven. And that will help them understand the nature of sin and forgiveness. And it will bind you together as a family. It's a great concept. Not being willing to share the fact that you have weaknesses doesn't help the process. Being open enough, being secure enough to tell your children, you know, I messed up and I want you to forgive me. That's the way up in terms of power. With spouses, I think um, the word controlling comes to mind. One of the real sins of power that spouses make with, others, with their spouse is they, uh, they try to control them. It's easy to control someone who loves you, isn't it? Uh, they know you, they love you, they care for you. So you can subtly manipulate to get what you need, to get what you want. But in the economy of God, the way up is down. We must be willing to give up that power we have to gain 
a greater power, a power that comes through the Holy Spirit. I think there's a simple test. You might remember from ethics class a man named Immanuel Kant. He was a great German philosopher. No real friend of evangelicals, but nevertheless, he gave us a good principle when it comes to ethics, and it's called the categorical imperative. It works like this. If you're facing an ethical problem, a choice, say to yourself, now, would I want the choice I'm going to make to become a universal law for everybody facing this choice for the rest of time? And if you can't say yes, don't do it. The categorical imperative. If if you can't affirm that you would like your choice to become the universal approach, the universal rule for everybody facing this ethical choice, then don't do it. I think, for us, a good imperative would be, do I want... Now, let me just get the words I have written down here. How will I bring glory and honor to God and myself through this that I'm doing? Will it be glorifying to God or will it be glorifying to myself? And if it's to yourself, then don't do it. Ask yourself that simple question. Will this action or this word or this approach to a conversation, will this bring glory to God? Will this strengthen His kingdom? Or will it strengthen my personal power? And that's the way to navigate, I think. That's the way to break down the things that get between us and God. We must remember that, uh, in essence, we are to wait for Him. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They mount up with wings like eagles. They run and not be weary. They walk and not faint. Power is something we all have to deal with, but we have to deal with it from a biblical point of view. Let's pray. Thank you, our gracious God, for your grace in our lives. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for direction. Thank you for the example of Christ who sat down a child in front of his disciples and said, the way up is down. Now bless us as we struggle with power and help us to win the victory. And we will give the glory to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.